Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. You know, the spring film festival season is upon us. In our hometown of Sarasota, Dr. Fleck and I have been enjoying the Sarasota Film Festival and all of the great movie offerings. Great festival. Absolutely. This year, there's been one colorful film that has been making the rounds at festivals around the country, and we're happy to report we had the opportunity to view this film last Sunday night. And joining us today is the film's director, Rebecca Stern. Miss Stern is producer and director, having a focus mostly on documentaries. In her bio, she says that she is interested in making awesome content that has an edge, and that makes folks think. Today, she is talking about her intriguing film, Well Groomed. Rebecca, thank you for joining us this morning on the Pet Buzz. Happy to be here. Hey, what is creative grooming and what motivated you to create a film about creative grooming? Yeah, absolutely. So creative grooming is the um, activity of making art on your on your pets. Um, usually it's done with with standard poodles um and it's a fun activity that has competitions all across the country and all around the world i was interested in making a film about it because i mean once you see the images you kind of have to um (laughs) i was looking for a way to spend a little bit more time with animals as i think we all are and i was also learning about documentary film and so when i found out about creative dog grooming i just saw saw an opportunity to combine two of my like most closely held loves and be able to make a documentary focusing on animals and focusing on the people who enjoy um spending time with their pets and also who are actively participatory in the art of grooming them which i had never really learned about before um i'd always had labs or pit bulls that didn't necessarily go to the grooming shop so it was an entirely new world of pet care for me um and i really enjoyed it uh yeah and also one of the things that i wanted to explore is rebecca rebecca you're answering all of my questions at one time so i have to have you answer the questions in order because i have to fill up my time and it makes it a lot easier to edit that way so um no we're excited that you're excited about being here and talking (laughs) because uh doc (laughs) knows a lot of creative groomers and then some so um i'm gonna i'm gonna stop you so this this will be edited out but um I'm going to go ahead. Yeah, so, no worries. So, Rebecca, this film is so different from a lot of the films that you worked on. Um, you know, so let's talk a little bit about the cast of characters. So tell me about the characters in Well Groomed. Who's in the film? And what does this group of women as a whole represent to you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's Adrian Pope, who's a competitive dog groomer out of um, Conway, South Carolina. And then there's Nicole Beckman, who lives in Ithaca, New York, Kat Austin, who's out of California, and Angela Comfy, who's um, out of Arkansas. So they're kind of all over the place. Um, and I wanted to focus on women who were both at the top of their game. Angela's really a seminal in the field, as well as people who are just coming up, like Nicole, who is just starting out in grooming in general and competitive grooming in specific. Um, the, the specific groomers really represented a um, selection of people who are in the grooming field. They kind of focus on a lot of different aspects of it. Kat does um, competitive grooming as well as creative grooming. And as I said, Nicole is kind of just starting out. 
as a group of women in total, groomers really represented a place where women's art was being celebrated um, and a place where women were finding a group of people who could kind of like bolster their loves and bolster their passions. And as a female filmmaker myself, I really wanted to focus on that. So if you've just joined us, we're talking with Rebecca Stern, director of the film, Well Groomed. So Rebecca, did you feel a bond with the groomers in the film? Oh, immediately. Yeah. 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 Um, they were they were so open and welcoming, um, and I really enjoyed filming with them. So, you know, one of the things I, I was curious, just because uh, I know Angela Comfy, uh, she's terrific. Were there challenges? I mean, you have professionals and newbies. So were there challenges in making this film? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's challenges in making documentary film in general. It's a really hard space. Um, it took about four and a half years to make this film. Wow. So it's just a long time. Yeah. I did a short film first, and then that went on the festival circuit. And then the feature film took about two years to make. So it's just, um, you know, filmmaking is hard. There's, there's the travel, there's the funding, there's being away from your family, and then there's also making sure that you capture a great story. Um, with the women, I think, you know, groomers are very busy people. Mm -hmm. And so the biggest challenge in filming was just making sure that um, I wasn't getting in their way, um, <laughs> which was really important to me because, like, they have, they're they busy grooming 15 dogs a day. And I don't even know the first thing about grooming, but all right. I know from watching them is that it's very hard. <laughs> So I just wanted to be able to capture that. You know, it's really interesting because I'm I'm almost still speechless. <laughs> it took you four years to oh make my. the film. Yeah. I mean, it really gives you thought when you start looking at some of these documentaries how long they take to make. But what I what I remember reading, I guess, in your press kit is it was challenging because some of the gals had already had done reality TV. So I guess mm -hmm. when they had to kind of change genre. Was that harder for them or harder for you? Were they trying to give you something that you weren't wanting? Or Yeah, yeah. It was an interesting thing because on my other documentary films, um, it wasn't – They none of them have been with people who have a lot of media training. Um, and so when I showed up in the grooming world, there had been a few reality shows that had gone through and had kind of trained for that. You know, there's – it's a very different thing to film with a reality crew than to film with a documentarian. I'm really there just to capture the reality of a situation and to stand back and to ask enough questions so that an audience at the end of at the end of the editing process will kind of have a good a good knowledge of what's going on and experience it the way that it was. A reality crew comes in and they they really already have points that they've built out to hit and to. Um, to make sure that they're doing and they can ask people to kind of act outside of their um, their lived experience mm -hmm. so um, it did take a little while to be able to say like no guys like I swear I don't need any drama like I'm if there's drama in your life like I'll get it because I'm here but right. otherwise like I just want to get to know you no um, I mean I think that's a great point because I know a lot of reality TV people uh, more housewives than anything else. And, you know, seeing them when they started the show and seeing them now and seeing the that that drama, it's kind of almost like they look for it now in their roles in these housewife shows. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So they're always kind of yeah. getting into these situations. So I would think that would be difficult. Like, look, tone it down. <laughs> you know, I just want to see what you're doing. I'm going to pick up the story from the perspective in regard to, I guess, what my overall theme was. So I would think with, and some of those groomers have big personalities in your movie. Yeah, they definitely do. <laughs> so, There's no need to tone it up. <laughs> well, let's move away from the groomers and let's move towards the audience of your film. Are there some positive and negative feedback that you get? Yeah, we've gotten a lot of positive feedback, I'd have to say. So the film premiered at South by Southwest earlier, uh, actually now last month um, in March, and we sold out three screenings. They gave us an extra screening. We sold that one out as well. Um, it's been really overall very, very positive. Um, I think that people are really responding to being able to watch a documentary that's happy and joyful, um, which was one of my big um, focuses in making the film at all. So I've been thrilled. <laughs> I mean, what about the negatives? I mean, I know you actually highlighted um, one of the negatives in an interview with one of the groomers. I mean, were people wondering if it was safe to color their dogs or dye their dogs? Or did people feel like the dogs were being... You know, I don't want to say abuse is not really the right way. Maybe a stepping stone. I, I don't know, to a, an enhancement in career. I mean, what what were... I mean, I think dog lovers would love the film, but, I mean, how did it go on the negative end? Were people worried about the safety of the dogs? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a question that always comes up. Um, one of the best things that have come out of the film um, is that people walk out and say, like, oh, you know, at first I was really concerned, but then I watched the film and I'm not concerned anymore. Like, these women obviously deeply care about their animals. Um, and I wanted to really show that bond between them and their poodles. It's a question that comes up, but um, in the course of filming with these women, I never saw anything to back it up. So I did want to include it in the film because it is something that people wonder about. Um, mm -hmm. But I wanted to include it in a film that... In a, I wanted to include it in the film in a way that really was true to their experiences, which was that a lot of the comments come from people who are online um, or um, don't have any experience with the dogs or necessarily with dogs in general. So um, in the film, it's really an archival package, and then you go back to the women to, for their response and for their lives um, to stay within that. So, yeah, I mean... Um, it was a question that we got while making the film as well, but it's a pretty easy explainer away from. Um, and once people get a chance to watch Well Groomed, they'll, they'll you know, for themselves. One of the things I thought was really interesting, there were a few things. Number one, you know, looking at Adrian getting her hair dyed, which actually kind of like brought it home because, you know, women are spending thousands and thousands of dollars every day getting their hair colored and highlighted and everything else. So I thought that was kind of a nice comparison. The other thing is, you know, spending a lot of time in the car and looking at the natural beauty, whether it was in California or whether it was up in Ithaca, New York, um, as compared to, you know, what these gals are doing, creating their own art. Did you ever find people saying to themselves or did you ever ask yourself, is this really truly art? I mean, yes, uh, but I also think that art is part of creation, mm -hmm. um, or I guess creation is part of art. So as long as people are looking to make something new and um, something that they find beautiful and something that brings them joy or expresses something that they have inside of themselves, for me, that is art. Um, I think that there's a lot of 
I guess you would call it maybe gatekeeping around what what art is, and mm-hmm. a lot of it t- points towards fine art, which I'm a huge lover of. I mean, I live in New York, and I'm from California. I'm surrounded by it all the time. But um, folk art and outsider art is still art, and so I wanted to be able to frame what the women are doing as what they see it as, which is art, um, and it's their way of expressing themselves and going out into the world, and I wanted to celebrate it. What a compelling discussion and, and such an interesting topic. So, Rebecca, I wish we had more time. Thanks for joining us today. Before you leave, please give us the film website. Oh, yes. Please come to wellgroomedfilm.com, um, and you can see where we're screening next. Great. Well, everyone, that was Rebecca Stern, the director of the film, Well Groomed. Look for it at spring festivals near you to learn more about the film. Definitely check out the website, which is wellgroomedfilm.com. Stay tuned, and we will buzz you right back with Flex Facts. Rebecca, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, Rebecca, thank you very much. It's very interesting. Hey, aren't there any guys that do this? There are a few. Not- <laughs> Let me say it again. No, Deirdre, say your name. Deirdre Schlenninger. Okay, Dr. Flack, say the name. Deirdre Schlenninger. Say it one more time. Yes. Deirdre Schlenninger. Okay, so we're going to yes. start. Okay. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. You know, springtime is cleaning time, especially if you have a pet. So while you're using all that pent-up elbow grease to get rid of wintertime pet hair, scurf, and other pet messes, make sure your kitchen is pet food safe. So... From dirty sponges to food storage, bin handles to refrigerator, the kitchen is the one room in the house most likely to be bacteria tainted. Pet food is more easily cross-contaminated when everything in its path is covered with bacteria. So joining us today to talk about how to keep your pet and his or her food safe is Deirdre Schlenninger, who has served as the chief executive officer of Stop foodborne illness since 2010. Schlunier also has served as an advisory member of the Joint Institute of Food Safety and Nutrition and is a participating member of the Safe Food Coalition and the Make Our Food Safe Coalition. She serves as commissioner of the International Food Science Certification Commission. Deirdre, welcome back to the Pet Buzz. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So is the rumor true that we hear, will you be retiring next month? I am. At the end of May, I'll be retiring. Oh, that's happy for you, but sad for us. <laughs> yeah, we're so sorry to see you go. Well, it's been a, it's been a really uh, gratifying position. Well, so let's get started. Yeah. Go ahead, Dr. Fleck. Tell, ask the first question. Okay, so why is spring a good time to review food safety practices and incorporate maybe some new healthy habits into our daily routines. Well, you know, it's always a good time for uh, food safety practices, but it seems like in spring a lot of people just kind of get renewed energy and and want to clean out all the cabinets and all of their spaces. And uh, so it's a good time to think about food safety while you're doing that. So my question is, because I'm always intrigued with this bacteria and I'm constantly cleaning my kitchen what areas of the kitchen can be bacteria breeding grounds 
Well, there are so many. <laughs> Let's see which we should choose. Uh, the, the kitchen sink is certainly a place for bacteria. It's important to clean it um, really well out every night. And uh, countertops, uh, cutting boards, and someone recently pointed out to me I hadn't thought about uh, spices. You reach up and grab your spices after cutting meat or, or other foods and uh, then put them back sometimes without thinking and uh, so that's a new thing on my list. Yeah, for pets, we don't really worry about the spices so much. But no, I was making yeah. a chicken last <laughs> night, and yeah. I realized that that's one of the things that you have to do. So, I mean, this is great overall, but, you know, we are pet-specific here. So go ahead, yeah. Dr. Fleck. So what, what, do, what do we have to know about the sponges and the dish rags, especially when we're using them on, on the counters and the food pet food bowls? Well, they're a good reservoir for bacteria, so uh, I like to put them in the dishwasher when I wash dishes at night. I just stick the sponges in there as well. You can also microwave them um, for 30 seconds and uh, to kill bacteria um, or drop them on the washing machine. Good to keep them clean, especially when you're using them on, on your pet dishes. Yeah, that's a good point. See, Dr. Fleck, now when you're looking for sponges... Now you know where they are, in the mm-hmm. washing machine or in the dishwasher, because mm-hmm. he's always saying, you're taking the sponges, you're taking mm-hmm. the sponges, Deirdre, and I'm always cleaning them. Okay, so mm-hmm. I just found this out. This is a new holiday, the first week, or awareness month. So the first week of April was a new pet awareness week. It was National Raw Pet Food Month. Mm-hmm. So why do pet owners who feed raw have to be probably more careful with the foodborne illnesses? Well, you know, raw foods, of course, uh, are are more likely to have uh, pathogens in them because they haven't been been cooked to get rid of them. And um, there was a study, a new study recently in Netherlands uh, at the university uh, that tested raw pet food for uh, zoonotic bacterial and parasitic pathogens, and they found uh, E. coli, Listeria, uh, Salmonella were all uh, present and that 86% of the pet food tested positively for um, a potentially lethal pathogen, E. coli 0157. And uh, so it's a bacteria that's commonly found in cow poop. And so Ooh, yuck. It's, uh, it's, it's something to about. We've seen a lot of uh, pet food recalls with raw meat. Uh, certainly they can happen with other pet food as well. But um, uh, since there's a surgeons, I think, of new interest in it, so we're seeing more of it now. So, for those that don't do raw, what's what's the best way for pet owners to secure kibble and and treats, and how how should we maintain pet food containers? Well, I think just as we do with our food, um, you know, the container should be cleaned out as as regularly as you can. Um, I I keep I have two dogs, and I keep mine in a big plastic tub, and I clean it out, you know, probably once a month, really well. And, um, you know, it's important also to, um, if you're using other, you know, a lot of the treats and things come in those resealable packs, which is fine to keep them in. Um, some people will put them in glass or plastic containers on their countertop, which is fine as well, as long as you're keeping them clean. Well, I'm going to um, actually just make a little sidebar to that. It's really important to keep the bag that your food comes in and put it in the plastic container because that bag has... Um, batch and lot numbers, so 
should your food become contaminated, um, you need to have that information so that you can send it to your vet or you can send it directly to the FDA. So you want to keep the, like Deirdre said, you want to keep those containers clean, but you want to keep that batch and lot number and any information off the bag so it can be easily traceable. Okay, so here's one thing. Thank you so much. Here's one thing I think that a lot of us do. We don't want to admit it. I actually did it the other day. I actually did it this morning, to tell you the truth. So why is it important to use a scoop and not your hands to take pet food out of the feed bag? I only did it because I scooped it, and then I threw the scooper in the sink, and I didn't want to take the scooper. Even though my sink is clean and I clean it out with Clorox all the time, I didn't want to, like, take it out of the sink and then... You know, so I wet and shove it in the food bag. So I just, I just yeah. stuck my hand in for a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think as long as you wash your hands really well afterward, mm-hmm. you're probably okay. However, uh, we do like to see people use scoops because um, you have to worry about cross contamination um, with with uh, food. So if you are taking the food out with your hands and you know, putting it in their bowl and then forget to wash your hands and, and uh, eat or or use your hands uh, to uh, uh, make food or something, then you're cross-contaminating. If there's bacteria in that pet food, then there's going to be bacteria on your hands and in anything that you touch. Um, why do we have to be careful about discarding pet food, thinking about that? especially down the drain or the garbage disposal? Well, I, I think that, you know, you have to be careful about putting anything with bacteria, you know, in reservoirs. And so, um, again, if you have bacteria with pathogens in it, um, um, you know, or pet food with pathogens in it, then, then that's going to cause a problem uh, going forward. You know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, was talking about the refrigerator. So um, because a lot of times and I'm going to make this a twofold question. So a lot of times we find old pet food in the refrigerator because we've put so many new things in there. So I was curious about that. And I was also wanted to talk about the importance of petting, putting a a lid on the open cans of food. Can you talk about both of those a little bit? Yeah, I think anything you put in the refrigerator, you have to be careful about cross-contamination. So it, it's the same kind of principle that, you know, if the food touches something else and if it's contaminated, then you're contaminating other foods in the refrigerator. It's really important to cover up uh, the pet food. And, you know, I know the cat cans have those special plastic tops you can put on them. But if you don't have it, you know, use foil or plastic wrap or something to um, cover the food. So what do we need to know about reusable bags? Because that's a, yeah. I think that's a great question, yeah. Dr. Fleck, because the stores want you to buy them. You stick them in your car. I've got a collection of them. Oh, I do, too. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think that's a good question. Very good question, actually. Um, I recently was working in mine. I thought, uh-oh, it's time to wash them. So it's, it's uh, you know, wipe them out with a cloth if they're plastic, or if you can, throw them in the... Um, washing machine and wash them again it's the same same thing to think about with cross-contamination um you know bacteria can linger and so um we want to make sure that the places that we're putting food um regardless of whether it's human food or pet food needs to be clean yeah here's my last question so why is it important to recognize the uh, the signs or symptoms of foodborne illness in pets and can you review them for us 
Yeah, I think that, you know, you um, really need to watch your pets. Are they eating? Um, you know, do they feel like they have a fever? Do they have diarrhea, uh, particularly bloody diarrhea? Um, all signs to look for in terms of, or are they throwing up? You know, those are all signs to look for in, in pets that might be ill. And um, I think, um, you know, if you see any of those signs, of course, you want to visit the uh, doctor. But I would always ask the doctor if, you, if you're worried about, um, you know, that they may be sick from a, from a foodborne illness, I would ask them to do a, a culture, a fecal culture, um, to test for pathogens. So do you think our dogs are going to be vomiting or having diarrhea very similar to humans? Yes, I do. I think that, you know, it's, it's a, um, a common symptom to have for, for dogs and humans. Great. Deirdre, thank you so much for being with us today. But before you go, can you give us your website? Yeah, sure. It's uh, www.foodborneillness.org. And yep. foodborne has an E in it so at the end. We want to wish you luck with your new career. So good luck thank to you. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And, and we're going to take a commercial break and be back with Flex Facts. No, thank you very much, Deirdre Schlanginger, the Chief Executive Officer of Foods. Read that. Do you have that? Yes. She's gone. You just thanked her. No, but say just that. Just say that was. That was de- that. That was Deirdre Schlanginger, the Chief Executive Officer of Stop For- Foodborne. That was Deirdre Schlanginger, the chief executive officer of Stop Food Born Illness. We're going to take a commercial break and be right back with Flex Facts. That's what you wanted me to do. Yes. This is segment six show wrap up. Well, we're back and you're listening to the Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Did you hear the bell? That's the signal that lets us know it's time to wrap the show. But before we go, we want to give you a preview for next week's show. Next week, we're going to be talking about having our Easter show. Our Easter show. I think it's going to be an interesting show. We're going to have a little bit of Passover, a little bit about Easter, and a little bit about Earth Day coming up. So I think that'll be fun. And Dr. Fleck, can you please thank our guests? Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Randall Lockwood, Lorian Clemens, and Rebecca Stern. Great. And as always, we must thank the our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin, coat, and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. And if you have questions or comments for us, write us at the team at thepetbuzz.com. We'll cover your questions and comments on our next show. And just so you know, you can follow along on our social media channels as the show airs. We post our thoughts, notes, pictures, so you can have a thoroughly enjoyable experience as you listen to the show. And if you've missed any portion of this show, visit our social media channels and listen to the linked podcast on Monday morning. Most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Goodbye. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. I'm veterinarian. Let's do that again. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We're here at the Pet Buzz. No, no. Start. Just do it over. Okay, you start. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. Here at the Pet Buzz, we are urban, suburban, and country. country. You know, are you having trouble affording your pet, especially when it comes to the vet bills and the meds for your pet? Well, Dr. Fleck is going to talk to us today about the high cost of vet care. 
And Dr. Fleck, do you think that due to the high cost of vet care, pet owners are spacing out their pet visits? There is no question that they're spacing out their visits. And unfortunately, because of the cost, they're maybe not attending the veterinarian with illnesses for their pet quickly enough to resolve the issues. I know sometimes in your practice you talk about you've seen dogs that you haven't seen in three, four, and five and six years. Absolutely. And you think that has a lot to do with it. It has a lot to do with it, and there's a psychology involved with that because maybe in their experiences they had been to the veterinarian two, three, four years ago, and maybe they had an, a bill in excess of three or $400 uh, on an outpatient basis, not for surgical or medical procedures. And then maybe they had to return again, uh, say, a few months later. And again, their bill was that. There was probably justification for the bill, Mm -hmm. but they didn't understand it. And they just felt as though that they couldn't deal with that anymore. Yeah, it can get really expensive. And three or four is pretty low these days. I think a lot of people, when they make their appointments, they don't really have an idea of what's going to cost me. I remember the AVMA Bear Survey said that's one of the big points for pet owners is that when they go to the vet, they really can't get a handle on what things what things are, what vet care is going to cost. So let's move on. So how can pet owners reduce their cost? Well, they can reduce their cost in a couple of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a preventative medical approach, and then there's urgent care approach. Mm-hmm. For preventative medicine approach, you should be comfortable with the doctor that you're visiting with and there should be a, a routine care each year, along with the preventative medicine that's provided, flea and tick products, vaccinations, How can et you save money on but, that? But you can save money on mm-hmm. that. Call around. Simply okay. call around. But they're coupons, right, Dr. Fleck? And there's, for many of the products that are around, right. as well as what veterinarians may so offer. So flea and they tick may, medication? They may offer coupons. They may offer discounts. They may offer rebates. So... That's something that you can do that isn't medically oriented necessarily. So if you're looking to try to save pricing, you can do that there. Unfortunately, when it becomes to an acute medical case, Mm -hmm. you're kind of at the mercy of the veterinarian in their hospital and trusting them that they'll be fair with you. Right. You know, one of the things that's really interesting, I remember a vet, uh, one of the reps came into your clinic for the prescription food. And one of the things I thought was really interesting, so there's um, the little charts, the pocket guides that you can look at all the food. And he was saying that if you pick up one of those, there's a website at the bottom. So if your pet is on prescription food, uh, this was the Hills guy, the Hills brand guy. He just said, go sign up for the re- so that's one of the ways. And you're right. The other thing people can do, especially some, because all medication is different and every vet carries, in some case, different medication, right? You can go and look online for those rebates too, correct? That's such a great point. The, the, the problem with that is many of the people that come with us uh, are older mm-hmm. and maybe aren't uh, able to work with the with the Internet as, as much. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it a little more complicated for them to benefit what the internet sure. can offer. But for those in the millennials and other people that are more technically oriented, right. there's so much that can be gained simply by going online and going to the companies 
like you just said, for the food companies. Right. Find out what they offer. Right. But ask for those rebates at the office. You know, if you're going to get medication, is there a rebate? Is there a coupon? Is there something that I can have? Okay, so let's move on. Well, one of the things that we see all over the place is these discount clinics at various locations. And every week they're going somewhere else, these kind of mobile clinics, and they're in all different cities around the country. Can you discuss the pros and the cons of these clinics? I mean, they save money, but... Well, when you talk about the discount mobile clinics, mm-hmm. those are are probably not any place where you're going to have a really good doctor-patient relationship okay. and a good evaluation medically of what's happening with that, that pet. Because they just do Cause shots. Because the, con- the concern is, and sometimes the laws dictate, that all they can do is provide vaccination, maybe heartworm testing, etc. Mm-hmm. So if there are medical issues... They sometimes can't even take care of them there. They would have to refer them to a okay. a, a, pay, a, a, a doctor with a uh, on-site veterinary right. practice. So in other words, you can get the discount shots, but you don't develop a relationship with a veterinarian. And most likely they'll refer you to somebody else if you're really having a hard time with your pet, correct? Yes. So you might want to even look for a discount uh, vaccination heartworm testing place mm-hmm. that also has uh, outpatient clinics got that so the relationship is really key okay so well many shelters and humane organizations offer lower cost vet care can you talk a little bit about that i think that's a wonderful thing that they do Mm -hmm. they provide so much particularly for people that are adopting pets right so they'll usually provide the first preventative care medication or vaccinations for them and then they encourage them to go to a veterinarian and follow up with those on a regular basis. The problem that they have okay. is that education is some they're, they're burdened with so many that they sometimes lose that time to give the proper education to to the new adoptees so that they really don't understand when and why they need to be at a veterinarian, say, within a year. You know, it's really interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine who uses um, a local area uh humane society that's where she goes and she says the biggest problem is it's kind of like the va you kind of have to wait you have to wait two and three months to get an appointment and sometimes people need to see somebody now so i guess it's that catcher's catch can it is discount but you still have to wait okay so this is one of the things that i found many articles that talk about reducing cost encourage you to work with your vet to set up a payment payment plan for mm-hmm. surgeries, especially if it's catastrophic. But is that an option that's available to everyone in this day of credit cards and financing? And not everyone can. Is that a, an option? Many many veterinarians do use that as an option, but okay. they do that with their regular uh, patients, their regular clients. Oh, like because there's, a, his, there's right. a history. So when somebody comes in and they start asking for those sorts of opportunities, you know, if there's no history of payment from the past, it's real difficult as a business person mm-hmm. to be able to take that on as a as a, uh, a scheduled payment program. So with people that already have been in the practice and have been good about their financial responsibility, that, that the veterinarians can do that. But there's other things that they can take advantage of. Uh, there's there's a, uh, an organization called Care Credit. Mm-hmm. which is used both in human and in pet medicine. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, especially for those that have uh, an urgent care, 
that might be a little more expensive. And that's really a financing option. And it's a financing option. So thus, it means you have to have good credit. And that that also creates the issue with the veterinarian that you ask the person to apply for care credit, and they they can't get care credit, then that kind of leaves you in a position. If care credit won't give you the option, can we give you the option? And that for the payment plan. And so, yeah, it gets a little tricky, yeah, and especially really you know if you think about most vet offices, you're in a situation where you don't want everyone in the waiting room to know your business. So these are things that you need to talk, you don't, know, think don't, about. Don't forget some of the humane societies and some of the uh, SPCAs, et cetera, may have a fund available That's right. to help you with that, too. And they're the vet schools. So I always refer people there to find out if they can, if they can provide assistance, too. Yeah, and if you live near some of the vet schools, they're doing studies. Some of them offer low-cost care. Okay, so one of the things that we always see is... Um, and we, you know, let's talk about pet insurance since we're talking about everything else. How is that working? The, I mean, the new trend that's going to be existing for people for the serious medical issues that they have. Don't mm-hmm. forget, our pets are living longer, right? So they have more serious issues, just like we have right. as we grow older. So those are are more costly, right? So pet insurance is something that. I think everybody has to take into consideration strongly, starting out maybe with catastrophic and then moving along for different coverage as you move along in life. Right. But I also think that, and based on some of the people we've had on the show before, like Wallet Hub, I mean, depending on where you live, vet care can be very, very expensive. I remember, I think Arizona was one of the more expensive states in the country for vet care. So when you take that in consideration, you have deductibles, right, that you have to pay. I mean, all of those kind of add don't, up. Don't forget to separate, though. You got okay. medicine and you got preventative medicine. Okay. Preventative medicine, it's really the responsibility of the person to to find out how they can lower their cost. Right. When it comes to medicine, that's going to be more difficult. Yes, right. and if you're in New York City... The cost of doing a, a surgical procedure like an ovary hysterectomy or uh-huh. spay is going to be a lot more expensive than in Bradenton, Florida. And really, I'm not really saying don't consider pet insurance. I'm just saying, like, when you take this instrument into consideration, um, you have Use to think. Use common sense. Right. You have to think about the deductible and as well as thinking about the monthly payments. So if you have lower monthly payments, you're going to have a higher deductible when something happens. And that's why I suggest catastrophic at first when you first uh-huh. get into it with a younger pet, and then as you move along, you can change your Okay, last question. 30 seconds or less. So we see a lot of these discount vet sites. So why why do pet owners have to be careful about buying less expensive medication online? Yeah, I think you'd want to talk about being online, the discount. Right. Right. You have to be concerned because you want to make sure that you're getting the brand products that are all proven. The, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the distributors that are online may have secured those products from unconventional, maybe un, un um, uh, unscrupulous dealers. Uh, more scrupulous dealers, right? And therefore, the product may not even be what it says it is. Right. Uh, well, it, I think you also have to. This day and age, you have to be weary of um, uh, not faulty. That, too, expired medication, but also counterfeit medication, because I think that's something that we're seeing now and more in the human space, you know, too. So look up the uh, uh, 
the accountability mm -hmm. of the distributor. Right. That's really important. And I know we've had um, various people on talking about, you know, medication and making sure that it is, you know, check the date when you get it, make sure it looks like what the other medication is. So look up the prescription, because they show you pictures of all the medication types. If you're looking for a certain type of medication, you can go online and see it. Well, Dr. Fleck, thanks so much, because this was another great segment of Flex Facts. <laughs> I can't even wait to find out what we're going to talk about next week. Yes. Yeah. You know, these things are really helpful. I mean, these little facts are great because you can incorporate them into your vet visit when you're thinking about going to the vet. I mean, every, today everything takes preparation. And this is a big one because affordability for, for that family member is mm -hmm. really important. Well, we're going to take a commercial break and come right back and we're going to talk about pet loss prevention awareness and the forms, the pros and cons of all the different IDs out there. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us on the Pet Buzz this morning. This show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We enjoy being with you each week talking pets. Well, although the dog fighting is a felony in all 50 states, the ASPCA estimates that tens of thousands of dogs are brutalized and killed every year in the United States with the highest numbers in Florida and California. So the question is, how can we put a stop to dog fighting in the United States? Well, let's find out. So joining us today to talk about the criminal and underground world of dog fighting is Dr. Randall Lockwood of the ASPCA. Dr. Lockwood, thank you for joining us this morning on the Pet Buzz to talk about such an important topic. Thank you for having me. So what is dog fighting and why do people get involved in this abusive practice? Well, dogfighting is exactly what it sounds like, people pitting two dogs against each other, usually in a, a square pit, but sometimes even uh, in impromptu pits in someone's basement or apartment. And why people get involved, uh, the primary motivation is largely money. This, there's a lot of money involved in, in dogfighting and the sale of fighting dogs, uh, but also some are into it simply for the bragging rights of having the toughest, meanest dog. And some of it's motivated by what we would just call statism. You know, I, I was so surprised because I guess in, to prepare for this interview, I started just like putting in dogfighting. And it's surprising to me because it's not like people are talking about it on a day-to-day -day basis how many dogfighting stories come up. And they're not just like two or three months or like every day, every month. So one of the things that I was seeing from a bust in Philadelphia is it seems like dogfighting is a, as a gateway crime. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think uh, in, in, in two, two different kinds of uh, being a gateway crime, first of all, uh, often juveniles get involved in dogfighting, uh, sometimes actually out of an initial affection for the animals but then they fall in with the dogfight crowd and in in that way get more indoctrinated into the whole underground of dogfighting but also it's a gateway crime in the fact that it's it's connected to so many other crimes uh when law enforcement busts dogfight operation there is invariably uh illegal drugs illegal weapons and lots of other crimes going on associated with it, which is one of the reasons why I think we're seeing much more responsiveness on the part of law enforcement, because they realize when you identify individuals involved in dogfighting, 
you're finding people who have a lot of other law enforcement issues. So which dog breeds are involved and how are the dogs trained? Well, again, we, we probably could take up a lot more than our 15 minutes <laughs> or so, but uh, in the U.S., it's almost exclusively American pit bull terriers are the dogs of choice for dog fighting, although there are many other breeds around the world that have been used in, in dog fighting. And traditionally, uh, the, the, the training is more conditioning than training to actually fight. A lot of what we see involved in dog fighting involves uh, building the animal's strength and stamina to continue participating in, in uh, a fight which might go on for literally hours. Uh, and it usually you know, starts with the, when the animals are, are under a year, just testing them to see whether they are game, meaning showing a willingness to fight and a willingness to continue despite injury. And uh, then it kind of goes from the initial game testing phase to see which animals might be inclined to fight to actually conditioning them to do the athletic conditioning to, to strengthen them. So if you've just joined us, we're talking with Dr. Randall Lockwood about dog fighting and its laws. So, Dr. Randall, where do we find dog fighting um, in general, and what laws apply to it? Um, well, we find dog fighting in, in every state. Uh, as, as was said at your opening, you know, we, we do seem to have a lot uh, going on in Florida and the southeast, also in California. Generally, it, it tracks with the human population. So dog fighting is quite literally everywhere, and some of it is urban, some of it's rural, uh, some of it's suburban. Uh, we really find it in lots of different lo- locations. And dog fighting is a felony in every state, and also uh, when animals are transported across state lines for purposes of fighting, that's a violation of federal laws. So there are a lot of fairly strong laws. Uh, and at the federal level, it can carry a five-year prison sentence uh, and massive fines. So the, the laws are, are quite tough. And uh, traditionally, most dogfighting prosecutions have been done and continue to be done at the, the state level. But we're seeing more and more interest at the federal level as well. So really, how does this affect communities as a whole? Well, I think dogfighting really does kind of destabilize communities. It, it, it's one of those things that's certainly evident to members of the community, particularly if people are um, bringing their animals out in public. Also, there's the connection between dogfighting and serious dog bites, that obviously uh, dogfighters are not what we would consider to be responsible dog owners, and we do see some connection between uh, involvement in dogfighting and involvement in serious bite incidents. But also, it's it, destabilizes communities in, in that people are genuinely afraid of both the, the the dogs and their owners. Yeah, I mean, I would think there would be some retribution. I mean, there was a story that I saw about a gal who heard these dogs screaming and wailing, and she walked over to the fence of her neighbor, and she took a picture. And, you know, the dog was in bad condition. She put it up on the Internet, and then the police got involved. So, I mean, I think she was also a fr- – she actually didn't put the picture up. She sent it to a friend. But I would think people would be, especially in a neighborhood, worried about retribution. Absolutely. Now, you know, as we, we know quite well, people who hurt animals are not nice people, and, and uh, there certainly are dangers associated with it. And as we've indicated, that, that we often see dogfighting is uh, linked to a lot of weapons 
violations, drug charges, things like that. In fact, uh, I work closely with law enforcement in Baltimore City, and most of the dogfight raids or dogfight cases that are developed in, in Baltimore really start out as uh, drug raids or drug investigations. And in the process of going into a premises on a search warrant, they find dogs in the basement or backyard or so on. So there's uh, almost always a close connection. So as if you say they're fighting in all 50 states, why is it so difficult for law enforcement to bust up all these local enterprises? Well, the biggest obstacle really is what are we going to do with the dogs? It's not too hard to find dog fighting. People will report it. People will call in about it. Uh, it's, it's relatively easy to find dog fights, not necessarily in, in progress, but certainly find individuals who are involved. But for law enforcement and for humane groups and for the ASPCA, one of our biggest problems is what do we do with the dogs when they are seized? Because these are often uh, long drawn out legal battles and you know, prosecutions. And sometimes if it's a larger scale dogfighting operation, there may be dozens or more dogs. They have to be housed sometimes for months and even longer, cared for, and uh, before we perhaps can get custody. So that's probably one of the biggest deterrents right now is, is the, the cost and time uh, and effort associated with housing animals that might be seized in a dogfight operation. As I say, it, it, it's not too hard to find out where it's going on, but it is very hard to to deal with the the dog victims of this crime that's horrible i remember um the michael vick case and um you know actually it's been going around the internet that nike is hiring him again or something along those lines but you know i i guess i'm asking because he's was kind of a famous person back then you know football player doing really well so do you think that the michael vick uh case shined a light on dog fighting and the possibility um, that dogs can be rehabilitated since so many of his, so I, I think a percentage of the dogs, maybe more than half the dogs, were rehomed eventually? It was actually closer to 90%. I was involved with assessing uh, Michael Vick's dogs, and it certainly did really shine the light on dogfighting and really woke up people, including law enforcement, to uh, the horrors of dogfighting and the prevalence of dogfighting. And when we were asked to evaluate the dogs, you know, in, in the past, the position uh, had generally been or the feeling was these, these animals are perhaps too dangerous to be placed or uh, they may fall back into the hands of dog fighters. And the most humane approach to dealing with them was to euthanize them. And, and prior to the Vic case, that really was the, the, the prevailing view. When ASPCA got involved in the case, we really wanted to make a concerted effort to treat these animals not as the instruments of the crime, but as victims of the crime of dogfighting, and to evaluate each of them as an individual. And personally, I went in with the expectation that we may find that 10% of the animals would ultimately be be placeable, and that but that would be that would be good if we could do that. And much to our surprise, that, that really uh, only one animal was euthanized for behavior reasons, one wow. for, oh. for uh, medical reasons. And although some remained uh, essentially you know, at, at Best Friends and other places, in, uh, many of them were successfully uh, rehabilitated and some became um, you know, therapy animals, some became ambassadors 
uh, and that, that's a story that's well well told in Jim Grant's two books, uh, Lost Dogs, and then his sequel that came out fairly recently, Found Dogs, that tells the story of each of the dogs. But that really did change the view, I think, of the general public, as well as uh, animal care and control and humane groups who recognize we really do need to look at the dogs as the victims of the crime, as, and we do need to look at them as individuals, because uh, the reality is uh, also um, many of Vic's dogs were, were not that interested in fighting, uh, and that's true of a lot of the animals we do see in dog fight operations that even though there's this focus on breeding dogs that show this d degree of, of gameness, uh, many of the dogs just want to be dogs. Hmm. Well, lastly, how, what, what advice could you give our listeners to help end dog fighting? Well, th there are lots of things uh, they can do. First of all is you know, being, being alert to uh, the signs of dog fighting in the neighborhood. Check out ASPCA's website for guidelines and the kinds of things to look at uh we have our our at aspca.org uh, slash fight cruelty has a lot more information on dog fighting and uh also there is pending legislation there's federal legislation that's been introduced called the the heart act that stands for help extract animals from red tape which would help uh shorten the amount of time animals have to be held in these legal cases and also would hold the uh, uh, the dog fighters responsible for uh, paying for the cost of their care while they're being held. So check out ASPCA.org for lots more information on dog fighting and what you can do. Dr. Dr. Lockwood, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this horrible information. Thank you. <laughs> but before you go, can you give us a... Give a us web the website one more time. Yeah. Okay. That's ASPCA.org slash fight cruelty, all one word, for more information on dog fighting. Perfect. Well, that was Dr. Randall Lockwood discussing the crime of dog fighting. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a buzzworthy moment talking about the pros and cons of pet ID. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thanks. This week on the Pet Buzz, we're talking about the criminal and underground world of dog fighting. Documentary, documentary director and producer Rebecca Stern is with us talking about her new film, Well Groomed. You can't miss Flex Facts as we're discussing how to afford the high cost of vet care. For National Pet Identification Week, learn the pros and cons of pet tags, microchips, and more. Good morning. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. You are listening to the Pet Buzz, the ultimate in pet talk radio, where we want to help you take better care of your pets. And we welcome our listeners who tune in each week from around the world. Let's kick off the show with some celebrity pet news. Well, I don't know if you've heard this, but pregnant and multi-published book author Chelsea Clinton, that's right, Hillary and Bill's daughter, has a new book on the market. Clinton, who is expecting her third child, has recently written Don't Let Them Disappear, 12 Endangered Species Across the Globe. The book gives young readers interesting information about each of the animals. For example, I don't know if you knew this, Dr. Fleck, but sea otters wash their pause after every meal hmm. i did not well the book also highlights why the different species are at risk and how young readers can help clinton said she wanted every kid to feel like they could make a difference i think it sounds like a good book 
Sounds like a good book to me. I think we ought to try to get her on our show. I think so, too. I think I'm going to buy a few copies and give it to a few kids that I know, including your delightful nieces and nephews, daughter. Right. Well, up next, our global news blog. So uh, now this is kind of why this story is kind of why you need to be careful when we walk our dogs, especially now that the weather's changing and we folks, you know, are really getting outside more. So. A family dog in Australia survived after swallowing six baggies of heroin. Mm. So let me explain. So Shelby the Cocker Spaniel, and I, you know I have affinity for Cocker Spaniels, was out on a walk with her owner in a park in Brampton, Australia, and she picked up a plastic bag off her the ground and swallowed it. Now, the owner realized that the dog had the plastic bag in his mouth, but he was really not quick enough. He wasn't successful in getting that that bag away from the dog's mouth. Well, Shelby, of course, became sick, and the dog went to the vet, and she was treated for some GI problems with antibiotics, but she didn't improve. So right after, literally the next day, the symptoms got worse, so Shelby was taken back to the vet for another consultation, Mm -hmm. and X-ray revealed what the dog's malady was. It Mm. turns out that Shelby had swallowed a plastic bag full of heroin, and as you can imagine, everybody was really in a state of shock. Now, there's two things I wanted to ask you about that specific case, because I would think if she swallowed something, the first thing I would want to do, Dr. Fleck, is have my dog x-ray. Absolutely. But sometimes a plain radiograph won't show it. Got to throw a dye in there, do a barium series. Maybe that'll help. Okay. So maybe the x-ray and then maybe come back if it's you can't see anything. Because I would think that would get expensive, correct? What's a barium series? Barium box? series means you put a dye in there so that it runs through the tummy and the GI tract, uh-huh. the intestine, and as it attaches itself to a foreign object, then as the dye moves on, you take your x-ray, you'll see the dye surrounding the object. Okay, is that expensive? It gets expensive depending upon how many pictures have to be taken. Right. You know. So you maybe s- you start out with the x-ray to see what Start out with see. a plain radiograph right. without the dye, and if that isn't detectable and you still have concerns, throw a little barium dye in. And do a sequence of so you could see. Okay, so what do you got? You got some news stories. Well, you know, last week we talked about Patty Patty Strand, the uh, director of National Animal Interest Alliance. Yeah, we talked to her. Okay, that was about the dangers of importing animals. Mm -hmm. Okay, it is important to note that the information we learned from that segment did not only pertain to the U.S. but throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Recent U.K. news outlets reported that a dog who never left the U.K. died from a tropical disease. They can also affect humans. Okay. Experts believe that the three-year-old Shih Tzu contracted leishmaniasis. Ooh, that sounds horrible. After being bit by a dog, originally from Spain. Mm -hmm. So we're in England. Now the dog came from Spain, who had been living with the Shih Tzu. Okay. The other dog developed the disease after being imported from Spain and was euthanized six months before the Shih Tzu died. Oh, interesting. Okay. In this case, dogs and other animals can transmit this disease to each other through biting. Okay. Humans, though, can contact the disease. Notice that. Humans can get it through a sandfly bite. Oh, okay. So canine leishmaniasis is still not well known in the UK, but case cases of this and other diseases are becoming more frequent now as it becomes easier for pets to travel across Europe and the UK. And as well as all these people importing these dogs. So if you do import a dog from another country, 
try to familiarize yourself with potential animal diseases from that country. Okay. Additionally, upon arrival in the U.S., bring your dog to a vet. Tell him where the dog came from and make sure you have a blood test to confirm that the dog is healthy and no health threat is there for the family. I think that's a good idea, don't you think? Oh, heck yes. Yeah. I mean, what kind of things should you test for, Dr. Fleck? Like everything? <laughs> Probably. Well, it, it, that was a, that's a difficult question for me to respond to. Right. Again, if you know what country they came from, uh-huh. then that the information from that country, which are common diseases. Right. Would be something that the veterinarian. Yeah, might and want I to think test. it would be a good idea to tell the vet that you just got a dog from Korea or from the Middle East or from Afghanistan. I think that's what we're saying. If you yeah. just import a dog, go to your veterinarian and ask them about that particular problem for public health concerns. Yeah. Okay, you got a new one. You got a okay, new story for some cat news. Oh, great! We like we don't hear about enough about cats. We don't hear enough about cats. According to a new Japanese study, domestic cats recognize their names even though they may not act like they do. Well, Hayden knows we his know name. We know that. Yeah, heck yeah. A team of researchers studied how cats kept at homes and at cat cafes where customers can interact with felines respond to human utterances. Okay. The study revealed that house cats were able to discriminate their names from words that have the same length and accents. Well, there's nothing like Hayden. Hayden's like, smart, too. Yeah. Even when the cat names were... That's our cat. Yeah, Hayden's our... Yeah. Even when the, the cat names were uttered by unfamiliar people, the cats reacted by moving their ears and heads. That's how you have to test it. Mm-hmm. But cats at the cat cafe did not discriminate their own names from those of, of other cats living with them. Yeah, you're probably at a cat cafe and people are saying Hayden, Joey, whatever, Beth, Betsy, you know. Haroldine. Right. Yeah, right, right. The results of the team's experiments imply that cats' names can be associated with rewards such as food, petting, and play, or with punishments, including taking them to a veterinary clinic or to give them a I bath. I guess it's like... Hayden, get in the carrier. You know, something <laughs> like that. Well, we're going to take a commercial break and, and be back talking about the criminal and underground world of dog fighting. Now, this is a segment not to be missed, so stay tuned. A note to Brad make sure that you put music behind the whole celebrity news segment. I haven't really been giving you notes, so make sure that you do that. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning on the Pet Buzz. This show is hosted by the Dynamic Pet Duo. I'm petrondologist Charlotte Reed, and I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. And we enjoy being with you each week talking pets. Well, you know, dog bites are serious public health problems that inflict considerable physical and emotional damage on victims and incur immeasurable hidden costs to communities. So, joining us today to talk about community approaches to dog bite prevention is Dr. John DeYoung, the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association. Dr. DeYoung has worked as a companion animal veterinarian and experienced veterinary surgeon. He owns the Boston Mobile Veterinary Clinic and Newton Animal Hospital. Dr. DeYoung, good morning and welcome to the Pet Buzz. Oh, good morning, Dr. Fleck and Charlie Reed. Great to be with the two of you. So how many people are bitten by dogs each year in and talk about the cost of something like that. Wow. Uh, well, there, uh, it's, there's a good news, bad news, I guess. The good news 
is that the number of dog bites claims has actually decreased by a little over 6.5%, and it's down to 17,297 claims um, in the last year. And the amount per claim, um, also good news, has decreased by 5.3% down to 39,000, according to the Insurance Information Institute and the State Farm, um, which is the largest writer of homeowners insurance in the United States. Um, but the dog-related injuries from bite wounds account for nearly a third of all homeowner liability claims. And the wow. bad news is that the yeah the bad news is the number of emergency room visits, especially by younger children aged zero to one, has doubled, um, from 1,794 visits back in 2001 to 3,125 in 2018. Wow. And every every one dog bite is too many. So um, it is a, an issue out there that we need to be paying attention to. So it's interesting. So we know that children between the, z- the ages of 0 and 12 are being bitten, especially male children. But what dogs are biting? Is it all dogs or a specific larger breed dogs? There's all sorts of dogs that are biting. And, you know, the cost is really greater than just dollars and cents that we were talking about. It's not only a tragedy for the families and the individuals that are bitten, but as well for the people that own the dog that's doing the biting because sometimes those dogs will be euthanized. Um, there have been some communities that have actually gone forward to um, sort of be breed-specific legislation preventing ownership of certain breeds, and that's not what we need to do at all. It's, it's not um, trying to legislate against specific breeds. So all breeds can be uh, known for biting. I remember many years ago, uh, some interesting data, and we're talking 15, 20 years ago, but the number one biting breed at the time in the United States was the Cocker Spaniel. Hmm. That was in the 1950s, right? Oh, I thought it was more like the, the 80s, but it may have been back in the 50s as well. Um, but I, I see dog bites when I do see them um, coming from all breeds. It's a question of the dog's environment, the dog being fearful, how the dog is being approached, and a whole bunch of other components as well. So how can the community bring awareness to the issue and reduce those number of incidences? Well, a good question, Dr. Fleck. I mean, a lot of things. I mean, number four, number one, um, being active, supervising the dog and the child is the only way to prevent dog bites. Um, you know, most people that are bitten, most children are bitten, are bitten by their own dog or dog that they know. So it's a question of making sure that um, the, the signs that a dog might be giving a person are understood. Um, they might understand, think of a dog's yawn as being sleepy and licking, as kissing, but often they can be signs of stress on a dog. So it's a question of educating um, people that own dogs and children that are approaching dogs to be careful on um, reading the right signs that the dog might be giving you. And communities can do a good job, too. They can, you know, have school programs with veterinarians. Veterinary behaviorists can come in, talk about um, proper care and handling of animals. Um, And the AVMA, we've got extensive education material for every age that's free of charge. I would also think trying to explain to people they can't anthropomorphize about their dog. Too many times people really believe that their dog is their kid or their son and not recognizing that dogs consider there's a hierarchy in the house. And too many times, especially if you have a small dog and a baby crawling around the ground, they, they're, not, they're not in tune with that, don't you think? Absolutely. So well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, you're, you're right. People anthropomorphize animals all the time. They think of dogs as their children because the human-animal bond has grown in significance dramatically over the last 
um, 10, 20 years, and animals really are seen as part of the family. But it's important to know that when a baby is crawling around on the floor or they start to grab a dog or a cat's tail or what have you, um, and they're not supervised properly by their parents, that's when accidents can happen. So realize that your animal is not a human being, um, that they need to be looked at differently, and then you've got to supervise the children. Great point. Supervision is key. Okay, so let's talk about how present legislation in communities help. I mean, talk well, to I us. Mean, with legislation, I mean, the one thing I already mentioned about being breed-specific legislation is really not important and not a wise thing to do. Um, it's not going to really reduce dog-related injuries. It's all about educating owners and what have you. I think most communities have leash laws, um, and, you know, as far as when dogs are outdoors, that they need to be on leashes to make sure that they can't run loose, run up to a child or an adult, and potentially uh, bite them if the person <clears throat> senses fear or if the dog happens to be aggressive. Um, and then there's also, you know, important that dog bites be reported. Um, they should be reported because uh, most communities require that. I know that here in Massachusetts, I'm required to, if a dog bites a person, I need to contact animal control, and that animal is going to be quarantined by the local animal control officer for a period of time, depending on its rabies vaccination status and other, other um, factors that might be involved. And then they may be assessed as to whether they're dangerous or not. But, you know, it's important to know dogs' biting history. So the most important legislation um, is that dog bites be reported. It's important that veterinarians and even human hospitals, when people present to an emergency room, report them. I'm, and I'm always sympathetic to people whose dogs bite because it's traumatic, especially once the police report gets filed. I mean, you don't, you know, that, per, like you said, that animal is, the animal-human bonds increased, and that's really important. But you have to know who those known biters are in the community. Because I've been bitten by a dog. My dog got bitten a while ago in a New York City park, and then I was bitten in the dog park. And I have to tell you, that person, they tried to hide. They were afraid I was going to sue them. And, and I'm around dogs all day, so that wasn't my modus operandi. But I did have to go make sure the dog was up to date on shots and had his vaccination so that my health nor my dog would be, you know, in question. So mm -hmm. it's good to know who the biters are in a community. Okay, so... It's very important. So what preventative measures can take place? Um, oh, I, I would say socializing dogs properly um, with people um, and making sure that they're well-trained and knowing your dog. Um, as you point out, there are dogs that that you need to be a little more careful about. They will give you signs. They may be a little more rambunctious, a little more aggressive. I mean, as a practicing veterinarian, I'm sure, you know, I, I see it all the time. I'm sure Dr. Flex seen it in practice as well, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, you've got animals that you've got to be a little more cautious of, and you've got to make sure that the owners don't sort of take a look at it and say, oh, that's just my dog being silly or something like that. Mm -hmm. No, it needs to be taken seriously. And so it's important to socialize the dog properly. There's all sorts of great training. Um, there are some dogs that are just naturally more aggressive or a little more fearful. And you've got to make sure that you work with your veterinarian um, or a veterinary behaviorist to try and assess what the triggers might be that make that dog nervous, might make it aggressive, and then do what you can to prevent it. Whether it's, it's retraining, whether it's the use of medications, 
um, uh, Prozac or other medications that might be needed to make a dog less aggressive. Those are all things that we need to consider. And it's a real important thing that people be completely honest and transparent with their veterinarian so the veterinarian can make an, a good assessment of what the dog needs to make sure that the dog is safe and that the people around the dog are safe as well. So I'm going to ask you a leading question. How can local sure. shelters, business owners, pet professionals, neighborhood associations, the media, how can they all help? Um, again, it's, uh, socializing can be the difference between um, bonding um, properly and dogs potentially being returned and understanding the dog's communication signals and body language. So training yourself, even sometimes before you get a dog, um, or when you get a dog, to know what things to look for. And that will protect the dog, the owners, and the community as well. So it's really a question of socialization for the dog and for people to be, especially the owners, to be very well um, versed in understanding what to look for. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting because this time of the year, as the weather gets warm, we're spending more time outside. So, you know, a nice PSA on a new local news station or even, you know, any business owner who mm-hmm. has a bowl... You know, maybe want to want to talk about or pass out any uh, administrative or any, you know, policy stuff that's going on. I mean, you know, it's really interesting that we're talking about this because, as you probably know, Perina has this big push to make communities better pet cities. You've heard about that, right? Yeah. And it's the second year they went to the U.S. Conference of Mayors. But, you know, it seems like they're only talking about the frills. They're talking about, you know, having the pet bowls out, getting communities together. But I think these are just as important issues to talk about. Equally or more important. Right. Because as we've seen, we've seen an increase in dog bites and postal uh, and postal workers. <laughs> or, you know, there was just a guy in Remember that guy in Detroit? Who was oh, yeah. they, the dog bit his boot? <laughs> he mm. got out of the house and he bit his boot. And the neighbors were trying to help, but I mean, I think this is just important to have a better or a more friendly pet city too. It's important to have a, a good pet friendly city. It's important to educate the public, and as you said, good PSAs. The show that you're doing right now is a perfect example of how to get the word out to the public, um, and veterinarians doing their jobs as well as their entire veterinary staffs in their hospitals and the shelters. Before they, I know a lot of shelters and adoption agencies, I think, do a very commendable job as far as interviewing the owners, making sure that they, the owners know what they're getting into, uh, making sure that the uh, home is going to be a good environment for the adoption of that animal. And it, it comes down to education. And that's why going to schools and veterinarians speaking at schools with young children, and I've had a wonderful opportunity to do that several times over my career, is a great thing to do, speak to local neighborhood groups and um, veterinarians are an important part of their communities and the more they can do to be a part of their communities and be um, seen and heard and one thing that I've always said as a president of the AVMA this year is to also make sure that people realize that we're not just companion animal doctors we're also food safety and food animal production research and education public health and epidemiology and bite wounds from dogs falls into that category um, as well as one health animal welfare and um, and the human-animal bond. So veterinarians have a lot of roles, and the more that the society understands all the things that we do and we get the message out, I think we'll be better off as a, as a profession, but mostly as a society. Absolutely, Dr. Zhang. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us this morning. We're going to have him back because I like him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My yeah. pleasure. Yeah. And if people want, they can go to our website, avma.org, and even avma.org forward slash dogbites. There's education materials for all age groups 
and we're happy to be a, a resource for the public. That was Dr. John DeYoung, the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, discussing dog bite community prevention. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Yeah, 